You're listening to the Mount Pleasant Podcast. To learn more about our church, visit us online at www.mpbc.church. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Turn your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And even if you're at home, I encourage you to get a Bible out, okay? And with your Cheerios and your Fruit Loops, you can do that. So we appreciate your doing that. You know, two Sundays ago, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 7, two Sundays ago we talked about a chart. Do you remember this chart that I showed you, this triangle? When God created marriage, He created man and woman. Now that's God's design. Now, the culture doesn't decide what marriage is. God did. Right? Not, not nine uh, justices in black robes that sit in Washington. They don't decide what marriage is. God does. And it's to be between a man and a woman, and God desires that we move closer to Him. And as we do so, we get closer as a husband and a wife. But the question for today as we come to 1 Corinthians 7, we'll be picking up in verse 10 in a moment, is this. What happens if things begin to fall apart? What happens when we aren't growing closer together as a husband and wife? What happens when the relationship goes south? What then? Today we continue in our marriage and family series and we come to the topic of divorce. You'll remember the Apostle Paul is writing back to the Corinthian church based on a letter that he has received from them asking all kinds of questions. And now we move to this section about family and marriage and we talk about divorce. Next week we'll talk about being single. What does it mean to be single? Now remember, these Corinthians are first generation Christians. No one in their families has ever been saved and they're the first. So this is all new ground for them. You see, six years earlier, the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey through Corinth, he established the church there in Corinth. And in these six years, it appears now that, well, there's issues folks are having regarding their marriages. They're in big trouble. And so now Paul is going to deal with this question of divorce. You've made your way there, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. We'll read through verse 16 today. The Bible says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so that they're not saved, and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's not a believer, and he consents, the unbeliever consents to continue to live with the believing lady, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is they are holy." Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner, okay, this is the one maybe in a marriage where there's a husband and a wife, one saved, one isn't. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You may remember two weeks ago, I gave you my top ten list of sound marriage tips. You remember that? We're going to look at them this morning, but we're going to look at them in reverse. 
Because if you get these 10 sound marriage tips in reverse, this really could be a list then of the top 10 ways how a divorce happens. Okay, you ready? We're going to look at it in the positive, but I'm going to spin it to the negative. You ready? Here's the first one. Pray together. If you want to have a divorce, don't pray. Just never pray together as a couple. Every marriage is stronger with God in the middle. That's the triangle. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. Matthew 6, But if you're not praying together, you're going to struggle. Do you pray together? Number two, you stop loving each other. I mean, in essence, you say, well, we've fallen out of love. You know, we just drifted apart. Um, we don't like each other anymore. Well, that was a choice. See, love is a commitment. It's more than just a feeling. You know, we've fallen out of love. Is that like falling off a log or falling off your couch in a nap? Three, you stop laughing. Everything's an argument. No longer is marriage the, or laughter the soundtrack of your marriage. There's very few moments of joy. You don't find reasons to laugh. Number four, you're disagreeing all the time. And there seems to be losers. You constantly feel like you're losing. You and your spouse are to a point that you don't mind the other one being the loser. Number five, you don't put your marriage on hold. Well, you have. It's all about the kids. You want to have a, a marriage that leads to a divorce, you quit spending any time together and make it all about the kids. You better not. You'll have an empty nest one day and an empty marriage. Number six, you're keeping secrets. You're lying now. You're consistently lying and you're justifying it. Lies break trust. Trust is the foundation for any marriage. And I would say trust is the foundation for any relationship. I've said it before. I, I know people that I love with all my heart, but I can't trust them as far as I can throw them. And you might love somebody. If you can't trust them, you don't have much, do you? Number seven, nobody says I'm wrong. Nobody says I'm sorry. Nobody says forgive me. There's no humility. Number eight, your schedule is more important than your spouse. You might not admit it, but he or she knows that because your schedule always comes first. People at the office are more important. You don't mean for it to be that way, but now you don't even hide it. Number nine, no longer are you modeling the kind of marriage that will make your sons want to grow up and be the kind of husband that you are, your daughters, ma'am, to be a, a good wife, because now you're just fighting in front of the kids and you, you don't even try to hide it anymore. You've just taken the gloves off and the kids are walking around on eggshells. When's mom and daddy going to fight again? What's going to set them off again? And number 10, <laughs> you know you don't have a perfect marriage because you've got an imperfect spouse and you've given up. You've given up. How does divorce happen? I mean, nobody comes to the altar and stands before, you know, the justice of the peace or the preacher expecting to get a divorce, yet it happens. I read a study this week by the National Institute of Health. It's a government organization. Here's their top six reasons for divorce. Number one, growing apart. They say, well, we just grew apart. What do you mean you grew apart? What is that? Number two, not being able to talk. You just argue all the time. Third top reason for divorce is how your spouse handles money. It's a financial issue. Fourth, infidelity. Fifth, incompatibility. We're no longer compatible. What happened? You used to be. 
Number six, drinking or drug use. Other results found in the national survey were these. Divorced individuals compared to their married counterparts, divorced individuals have higher levels of psychological distress, substance abuse, and depression, as well as lower levels of overall health. According to the study, when it, when it relates to kids, marital conflict and divorce is also associated with negative child outcomes, including lower academic success for the kids, poor psychological well-being, and increased depression and, and anxiety among the children. The study concluded, quote, given these negative outcomes of marital conflict and divorce, the overreaching goal of premarital relationship education has to be to provide couples with skills to have healthy marriages. And church family, that's why I will not marry a couple unless they've spent five hours of premarital counseling with me. I won't do it. Hey, preacher, we'd like for you to marry us on such and such date. Okay. Okay, well, so we need to set down a time to have, usually in about three sessions we can knock it out, about five hours. Well, we just want you to marry us. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. See, because I'm going to be held responsible and accountable at least for the fact that I stood before God and you shared vows before me. And so I'm going to counsel with you. And if you don't want to counsel with me, I'm out. I'm out. It happens a lot. Folks, there's no other way to say it. Divorce is bad. In fact, God said it in Malachi 2.16. God says, I hate divorce. God hates divorce. You know, we were just singing the blessing. Steve shared about the fact of, that we want to pass on the blessing of our, of our families uh, to the next generation, to their children and their children and their children. And I love that line in the song that says, the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Isn't that what we all want in our homes is peace? Peace? Do you have peace in your home, in your relationship? But you see, church, here's the thing. Here, and we've been talking about this for weeks now in our series. What is our identity? We've got to remember who we are. Who are we? So who are you talking about? I'm the church. Who are we? We are the bride of Christ. And so let me ask you this in relation to divorce. Do you think that Jesus might ever divorce us? Is there ever any chance of that? Zero, because he said, I will never what? Leave you nor forsake you. Praise be to God. I want to show you the words of Jesus. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 19. You bring your Bibles with you or flip to it on your phone. Please get off Instagram. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not that anybody's on Instagram. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. And I want you to see the words of Jesus. Jesus is being tested by a group of Pharisees that are trying to trick him. And I want you to see this as we pick up in verse 3 and read through verse 9. The culture in Jesus' day was broken and the culture in our day is broken. And so we have divorce. You made your way there, Matthew 19, 3. And Pharisees came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Like she burned the bread, or I don't know, she just doesn't smell good, or some, some, some dumb thing. Jesus answered, Have you not read? He said, You ought to know. You're Pharisees, you're scribes, you understand this. That... He, that's God, who created them from the beginning, made them what? What does it say? Male and female. No guessing here. And he said to them, God said, therefore a man... 
that's in the masculine, shall leave his father, that's in the masculine, and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, that's in the feminine. That is marriage. Listen, church, I'll say it again. God's Word does not change with the culture. God's Word does not change because there's nine justices sitting in some place in Washington, D.C. in the year 2017 and say, now this is what marriage is. God's definition of marriage does not change, will never change. It's one man and one woman for life, and that would be a good place for an amen. amen. By the way, if you'll amen, I'll get done quicker. I better be careful saying that, Pastor Dale, because I, that's like gas on a fire. I'm not sure that. I might not, but I'm going to try. Verse, look at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but become one flesh. There's no other way to become one flesh biblically, even anatomically, to procreate children without it being male and female. You understand? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I say that in every wedding. I say that in every wedding. You know, the old the King James says, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Asunder, what is that? Separate. The man, I mean, yeah, an attorney can separate it, but in the eyes of God, you're married. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Why did Moses allow us to divorce us, what they're saying, to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. That's why. He put it in the present tense. He says, Moses allowed you to divorce, speaking of the nation of Israel, your wives, but from the beginning it was not to be so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what was the condition for divorce? Adultery. Adultery. Hey, church, can adultery be forgiven? It's, it would be, I mean, gut-wrenching, but it can, can it? Yes, it can. It can be forgiven. Listen, did the nation of Israel commit spiritual adultery? Over and over again, they walked away from God. They, and God said it, you have, you have committed adultery, whoredom, with the other nations, pagan gods. And yet he continued to take them back. Yes, adultery is a condition for divorce. Might there be another reason that you can separate from your spouse? There actually is. Turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7 now and go to verse 39. And it's very simple when you think about it. If your spouse dies, are you separated from them? In other words, are you released from them at their death? Answer, yes, yes. See, and that's verse 39. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she, she can remarry. But notice that last phrase, those four words, only in the Lord. What does that mean? That means that if she chooses to remarry, she, she remarries who? A Christian, a believer, because not to do so would mean she, biblically speaking, is unequally yoked. You know what it means to be yoked? We don't live in as much of an agrarian culture as we used to, but can I show you an unequal yoking? <laughs> that is unequally yoked. That steer will kill that donkey. See, 
And that's 2 Corinthians 6.14. Eventually we'll get there to 2 Corinthians, but listen to this. See it on the screens. Do not be unequally yoked. Listen, Christian, don't yoke yourself up with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So let's say you're dating today. Are you dating a Christian? So often I'll see a couple, they'll come into church or I might see them in town or something and maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I know one of them, the other one may, perhaps I don't know. Let's use the example, I know the young lady, she may come to our church. And so and if I see her kind of separately by herself, I'll say, oh, so you're, you, you guys are dating now? You know, the guys walked away, yeah, yeah. And I'll say, oh, oh, so, so he's a Christian? Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. He's real, you think so? But he's really nice, and he's so good to me, and he's handsome, he's, and he's got a nice car. What are you doing? What are you doing? The first thing you should ask yourself, is that person a Christian? And if you have to guess, run! <laughs> You should not have to guess if somebody's a believer. Can I get an amen? amen? What's wrong with you? If you're a Christian, you should be, the first most important thing is praying for a believing person to be with. You go, well, I'm not planning on getting married right now. Then what are you doing dating? If you're 15 years old, what are you doing? I mean, Solomon said, don't awaken love too soon. This is where we get into this thing. We come together and the little things in common, big things in common point in the same direction. You don't touch these two fingers right here, the wedding band fingers. That's the, the sexual intimacy. So what do you think is going to happen? Eventually, these fingers are going to touch. That's how God designed us. When we have all these things in common and we spend so much time together and you're 15 and you're alone all the time together. What, what are you thinking? Mom and dad, what are you thinking? We get so unequally yoked. And might I say this to the couples that are dating? You should be pursuing the triangle as well. Huh? Yes! Let me tell you something. If you're in a dating relationship and you're not both pursuing God now, do you actually think that some magic switch is going to flip when you say, I do at the altar? You better be training for this now. And so, young lady, if he's not praying with you before he drops you off at the house, that ought to tell you something. That'd be another good place for an amen, Christian mom and dad. How bad do you want your kid to be in a relationship with somebody that's saved? I had my little niece over here in the first service, and I looked at her, and I already prayed for her, and she's not even a year old. I pray for her salvation and for her spouse right now. Right now. That's the two most important things that will happen to that little girl. To be saved, and then if God ordains it in her life, we'll talk about singleness next week. Some people have the gift of singleness, but if she, if she were to have the gift to be married, that she would have a believing spouse. Brings us to verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. You say, what does that mean? He had been quoting the Lord Jesus. 
See, he says the wife should not separate from her husband. In other words, they come and become one flesh. That was the quoting of Matthew 19. But if she does, and now Paul's giving commentary. See the parentheses in verse 11? That's, that's the comment. Again, this, this is the divinely inspired Word of God. It's still the Word of God. But this is Paul's commentary. But if she does, she should remain unmarried. In other words, if she separates, let that lady remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And you read those two verses and go, you know, I'm not sure, Pastor Kevin, what that means. I get it. Remember something with me. In Corinth, when Paul came through there six years earlier and established that church, people started getting saved even married couples. But there were times when of the two, let's say that the lady got saved, but the man did not come to Christ. And they're still married, but the saved person says, should I stay married to this unbeliever? That's the question. Verses 10 and 11 give the answer. Yes, you're to stay with them, even if they aren't saved. Stay married as long as the unsaved spouse desires to stay in the relationship. Don't get a divorce. But if you choose to separate for a season of time, do so with the hopes of reconciliation. So many people, they come to me for counseling and they say, well, we're separated. And, and the truth is, that's, they've already made up their mind. They're just trying to get everybody off their back. Well, you need counseling. Oh, we'll go get counseling. And Pastor Kevin, we'll go get counseling. And so often I find that they've already dug their heels in. Let me hasten to say this regarding separation. Let me say this to perhaps a lady who's living in an abusive home. Ma'am, and you fear for your own safety or your children's safety. Can I say this clearly with these two words? Get out. Get out. Separate for a season of time. If there's a lady here who's listening or maybe somebody watching on Mount Pleasant anywhere, ma'am, you nor your family should ever stay in a situation where you fear for your safety or for your children's safety. Get out. But if you find yourself in this situation, the goal is still reconciliation. The goal is that God might work a miracle you see, that he might bring salvation to that unbelieving spouse. Again, I want to be clear here on what the Scripture is teaching. If you separate from your spouse because of abuse or things have gotten totally intolerable, then you're to remain unmarried in the hopes that you may eventually reconcile. And that's the tone and tenor for the next two verses. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, now I'm saying this. The Lord is given, this is again divinely inspired, he's, but he's not crediting Jesus with these words. He's crediting this coming from the Lord to him. He says, if any brother, talking about a saved man, has a wife and she's not saved, and yet that unsaved wife wants to continue to stay with that saved man, that man should not divorce his unbelieving wife. And verse 13 is the converse. If any woman has a husband who is not saved, and that unbelieving husband consents to stay with the believing wife, she shouldn't divorce him. Again, if you're married to an unbeliever, a lost person, as many of the Corinthians were, and that unbeliever leaves, then you can live in a state of separation. But you are to seek to pray for their salvation and reconciliation. 
That should be the goal. But if they abandon you and divorce you, then you're released from them. Ultimately, though, the goal is for the salvation of the lost spouse. Do you see here in this passage how all of the initiative is actually on the unbeliever? If the unbeliever chooses to stay, if the unbeliever chooses to remain, that's because as the believer, you're the strong one. And the goal is to see your unbelieving spouse come to Christ. And this leads us to verse 15. Unfortunately, though, if they leave you, there's nothing you can do about it. If they choose to leave you and walk away, watch verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, you're not to stay enslaved to that. God has called you to peace. That's what we were singing about peace in the song, The Blessing. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, your question might be this. Well, well what does the word separates there in verse 15 mean? D does that extend all the way to divorce? Well, most Bible scholars say yes, it does. Some say it's unclear. I personally believe that word extends all the way to divorce, meaning this. If you have an unbelieving spouse who leaves you and wants a divorce, you can't make them stay against their will, can you? You can't. And if they leave, they're lost, and they choose to divorce you, then you are free of them. That's what the Scripture teaches there. But I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice in verse 14 something very critical. But to see it, we've got to read it in context. So jump back up with me to verse 13, and we're going to get to 14. But watch 13. If any woman has a husband, okay, she's saved, but the husband is an unbeliever. But that unbeliever still wants to stay in the marriage. That believing wife should not divorce him. Now watch verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his saved wife. I'm using the word saved there. And the unbelieving wife, conversely, is made holy because of her saved husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now you read that verse 14 and you go, wait a minute, Pastor Kevin. Is Paul saying that an unbelieving husband is automatically saved because his believing wife chooses to stay with him? No. No. We talked about this last week. There are no coattail salvations. Remember last week when the four guys brought, remember that lady on the roof in The Chosen? Remember we showed that video? You remember the paralyzed guy? And Jesus saw their faith and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Was that because of the faith of the, of the people that brought him? Well, that, that certainly had something to do with it. They had to bring him there for him to get saved. But the man couldn't get saved unless he himself wanted Christ. Listen, you don't get saved just because you grew up in a Christian home or your grandma went to church and took you when you were a kid. You get saved when you yourself confess and repent of your sin and call on the name of Jesus to save you. It's that simple. So no, just because there's a believing lady in the home doesn't mean that her husband is automatically going to be saved because of her. But here's the deal. This is what Paul is saying. But because of her Christian witness, that man has a whole lot better opportunity to come to Christ because she is there. And so do her children. So do her children have the opportunity to see her in her Christian witness and have the opportunity to even lead her children to Christ. That's what he's teaching. Now I want to offer a word of encouragement to the Christian wives who are here, or maybe those who are watching. 
Because I know, as is often the case, it's not always, but we have it here in our church, we have a saved lady who comes without your husband. You might be here today and he's still at home. You might be watching today and he's out on the golf course, or he's out mowing the yard, whatever. Ladies, I want to remind you what the Scripture teaches for you to do about your lost spouse. You ready for this? Watch the screens. Here's what the Scripture teaches. Peter said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That means keep being respectful. So that even if some do not obey the Word, they're lost. They may be one without a word. You don't nag them to death, but by your conduct. By your conduct, verse 2. And when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, ladies, if he is lost and he's willing to stay in the home, then try to live before your unbelieving husband in such a way that your conduct, not your words, your conduct shows him your confidence and faith in the Lord. So many ladies have told me through the years that just continuing to pray for their husbands and living out faithfully before them were the keys to their husband eventually coming to salvation. Be encouraged, ladies. Be encouraged. Pray and live for Jesus. Trust Him. Now, church, I want to take the few minutes that we have left, and I want to talk to you about what I've discovered to be the number one marriage killer. And I want to try to show you how to divorce-proof your marriage. So I want you to listen carefully. If you're listening carefully, this would be a good place for an amen, and I'll hurry. Ready? Go. Amen. amen. Okay, good. Three of you said it, or at least the ones that I heard, but that's fine. That's good. You, want, you know what I found in 15 years of pastoring, what the number one marriage killer is? You ready for this? A hard heart. And I'll actually show you a way that I describe it. Here's how I describe it. It's like a sign on your heart that says this. No swimming. That lake is your heart, and you say to your spouse, no swimming. Use this at your own risk. You try to come and get inside of here, come at your own risk. No swimming. You're done. It's granite, marble, not getting through. Church family, I'm more convinced than ever that all of these symptoms of divorce, the lying, the deceit, things that lead to shift blaming, of, uh, or shift blaming and anger and fighting, these are all symptoms of the real problem. It's uh, no swimming has gone up on the heart. Heart's gotten hard. And it's on both sides. All of the outpouring of these actions, whether they're you know, we rationalize why we do what we do. We get to a place where we say, you know, I'm done. I want to show you some symptoms of a hard heart and let you play this out in your own mind. You ready? See the screens. What is hardness of heart? It's a lacking, a genuine sorrow over sin. You don't even care anymore. Continuing to return back to temptation, lies, and deceit. You've got a hard heart. Choosing to think of yourself as most important. Not the other one. You are. My needs being met. You've got a hard heart if you respond to everything with defensiveness. You've got a hard heart if you always need to be in control. You've got a hard heart if you keep waiting for the other one to say, I'm sorry first. 
demanding that the other change first, thinking more of what you deserve instead of what you can give, saying you forgive but never letting go, preserving your own well-being at the expense of the other, and finally reading this list and thinking they need to be reading this list more than me. Is your heart hard today? Listen, married couples, we must guard with all diligence against hardness of heart. It has no place in marriage. And it's so easy for hardness of heart to creep in, even with the smallest acts of, uns of selfishness. That left unchecked can grow into wrath and anger and bitterness. It's so sad that something that was so beautiful has turned into something so bitter. I often ask people when they come to me for counseling, I'll ask, what is your spirit about your situation? Do you hate the fact that you're considering divorce? I hardly ever get the affirmative that, yeah, I hate it. No, I start getting the excuses. Well, we've just fallen out of love. <laughs> is that like falling off a log? See, that's all about the emotions and the feelings. Listen, married couples, do you always feel like you love your spouse? This is no. <laughs> no. Sometimes they get on your ever-loving last nerve. I mean, they're standing on it, stomping on it. <laughs> right? And at the moment, you don't feel like you love them. You've lost that loving feeling, oh. See, and we, all the songs and all the music and all the, the, the movies is all about the feeling. No, what's happened is you've decided to stop loving. See, love is a decision. You decide to keep loving no matter what. You choose not to put up the no swimming sign. See, God so loved the world that he did what? He felt all ooey and gooey about us. He sacrificed his son. Love is sacrifice. It would be like, Kevin so loves Pam that I sacrifice Proverbs 4.23, see the screen says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, it's interesting, in returning back to that National Institute of Health study from earlier, when participants in the study were asked if the partner should have worked harder to save their marriage, yeah, 66% of the men and 74% of the women said, yeah, my spouse should have worked harder. But when asked if they should have worked harder, only 32% of the men and 33% of the women said, yeah, I should have worked harder. It's always their fault. <laughs> Listen, let's say it's 80% their fault. The wall that's been built is 80% of their fault. Could you own up to the 20% that's yours? Huh? You go, well, mine's not 20%. <laughs> well, then you're 2%. It's an amazing thing when you go to somebody, maybe you're spiritually stronger than they are, and you go to them and you go, it's, it's your 2%. Honey, I'm sorry, just the way I reacted and acted on that. And you know what happens so often? When people see humility, they're, they're just I'm almost always, not, not always, but a lot of times they'll go, you know what, I, I appreciate your honesty on that. I, you know what, I, 
I mean, it's like dancing. It takes two to tango, right? How do you tango? Is this the, I, I, I mean, I mean, I look silly up here dancing by myself. Own up to that part that's yours. And, and in that humility, listen, Christ died on the cross and he did nothing wrong. He chose to take it. And I know some of you say, I'm tired of taking it, Kevin. I'm sick and tired of taking it on the chin. But it might be that one last act of humility that breaks through by your conduct, by your character. Church, family, marriage takes work. Can I get an amen? Amen. I'm not talking about just acts of service like cleaning the house, washing the car, and scrubbing the toilets. That's all great. I'm talking about the work of the gut-wrenching, grueling activity of rolling up our sleeves and having the hard conversations. Talking about the elephant in the room. I'm talking about the laying down of our own lives and looking to the other as more important than ourselves and deciding to be willing to take down the no swimming sign. You cannot put back a marriage with this sign up on your heart. They don't deserve it, Kevin. I understand. I understand. I know how exhausting it is for you. You're dealing with the rigors of life. Lord have mercy. We're dealing with COVID. That's made everything worse. Has it not? I mean, it's, 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 it's pulled us apart. I mean, I don't even know whether I can even shake your hand, hug your neck, you know, you know, send a carrier pigeon to say, hey. I mean, I, I don't know. And it's just made it weird. It takes a selfless work to be diligent, to be respectful when they're not being respectful, to be loving when they're not being loving. Divorce hurts, I know that. Let me say this to the couples who are here today, maybe who are watching today. If you find yourself not at peace with your spouse, then stop what you're doing because it's not working. (laughs) And begin to talk and to pray together. Did you hear me? Would you, would you consider doing that? Begin to talk and pray together. And might I say this as I show you the triangle one last time? I have never had a couple in my office doing marriage counseling when they're both seeking God. If you'll both seek God, you don't need me. They've been another good place for an amen. Some of you are going, mm-hmm, amen, that's good. Say amen. If the Bible says say amen, let it be so. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek Him. If you're not seeking Him, seek Him now. Start today. Covenant to pray tonight with your spouse. And ask God to help you. I want to close with the lyrics that the praise team used. Uh, Jeff Farmer was singing in our first song, Lord, I Need You. I love that. I love that song. Here's the verses. We'll put them up there. Where sin runs deep. Whew. Your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. Where you are, Lord, I am what? Free. Don't you want to be free? Holiness is Christ in me. And you know the chorus. See it? Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you.
I want you to sing that with me. We're going to go back to that last verse. You ready? Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Here's the chorus. Sing it, church. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Do you need him? Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Find us at www.mpbc.church and on Facebook at facebook.com mpbcnc. Have a great day, and we hope you'll join us again next week.